If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. You're going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It was one of the most astonishing discoveries in recent times. The body of Richard III, one of England's most famous and infamous monarchs, was found under a car park in Leicester, more than 500 years after his death at the Battle of Bosworth. To mark the 10th anniversary of the discovery, the archaeologist and journalist Mike Pitts wrote a piece for BBC History magazine charting this incredible course of events. And he also spoke to the magazine's editor, Rob Attar, for this podcast. The conversation also includes a discussion of the new film, The Lost King, which presents a dramatised version of the discovery of Richard's remains. Mike, you've written a book on the discovery of Richard III, and you also have written a piece for our magazine. I wonder if you could explain what your own involvement in this story has been. It began simply as a journalist, as editor of British Archaeology magazine. I received press releases from all over the place. And I remember getting a press release from the University of Leicester saying they were planning to uh, excavate in this car park, hoping to find Richard III. I have to be quite honest, I treated it as a bit of a joke. Um, You'll know as an editor yourself, you do get some very strange press releases. (laughs) 
And I thought, okay, here's a university um, with a backstory, you know, looking for publicity at a time when universities were frankly struggling to recruit students in particular subject areas. Uh, It's trying to do its best, but I mean, you can't announce you're going to find something before you've even broken the ground. You know, you can have ideas about what might be there, but the idea that it should be as, as specific as a particular individual and even the idea that you'd be able to identify an individual had you found that person seemed to me far-fetched. So I didn't pay a lot of attention. Not long after, it hit the news. Things moved very fast on the excavation in the most extraordinary way. And I had a phone call from my editor at Thames and Hudson. <laughs> says, Mike, do you think there's a story here? And I have to say, I said, I'm not sure... Um, But I went to the subsequent press conferences and once I met the archaeologists and I had some really interesting conversations with Atha Mirza, who was the head of the press office at Leicester University, who really impressed me in the way he was handling it. Um, Then the whole thing changed in my mind and I thought this is the most extraordinary story. It's a combination of Um, a wonderfully eccentric woman who had decided she wanted to find Richard III's grave with the goal of changing the public impression about Richard III um, and correcting, as she saw it, uh, the the king that we see in Shakespeare's play. Um, Somehow this would be achieved by finding his grave and, importantly, she would then be able to Um, oversee a respectable reburial of the king, which ultimately, of course, happened. And you had that combined with a fantastic team of archaeologists and scientists at Leicester University. And as the project progressed, it wasn't just archaeologists, but they were bringing in all sorts of people, engineers, historians, um, linguists, almost all from University of Leicester. So in a a interesting way it it brought together people from different departments who hadn't worked together before at the university try and puzzle out this story that the archaeologists had uncovered and it by any question it was the most extraordinarily successful project with terrific science terrific research with an unbelievable conclusion with this spectacularly dramatic reburial ceremony in leicester cathedral taking the story right back richard iii is killed at the battle of bosworth in 1485 and his body wasn't then discovered for more than 500 years. Were any attempts made in the intervening centuries to try and locate the king, to try and get his remains out as eventually happened? I'm not aware of any attempts to physically find them, but there was a great deal of debate about where they might be. A myth grew in Leicester that his grave had been dug up not long after the friary in which he was recorded to have been buried had been demolished, dissolved during Henry VIII's reign, um, and that the remains had been cast into the river in in disgrace, in disgust at this horrible king. And there were some versions that even uh, suggested that happened while the friary was still standing. And in the 19th century, a local worthy erected a great carved stone plaque on a bridge over the river saw, proclaiming this myth and saying, here near here somewhere, the remains of Richard III. And so that became an, a sort of an accepted version of events in Leicester. And um, I have to think to say, it's probably true to say that neither his mainstream historians nor archaeologists really considered this very much. 
but some people did and there were a number of versions that um, people came up with to contradict this story. I mean, the, the basic, the fundamental issue was that there was actually no historical evidence for this. I mean, the, the record seemed to suggest quite clearly that he, his body had been buried in Greyfriars Friary in Leicester. Um, the Friary had been demolished and then subsequently became a garden. And in the 17th century, there's a record of a memorial in this garden, a memorial pillar with a plate on it saying, near here is the grave of Richard III. And remarkably, a number of local people mainly figured out that that grave was probably still there because it was in an area that had been garden and subsequently in modern times car parks. And so it was an area that by and large hadn't been built over much, which is what you know you would expect to happen normally in a in a busy city and of course building would destroy a shallow grave so there was this idea that he could be there and john ashdown hill who was a late historian who became quite uh, strongly involved in the richard the third project wrote this book about the death of richard the third and he included in it a chapter on what his original tomb in the friary might have been like and what inscriptions were on it and another chapter about the grave itself which concluded that it might well still be there underneath a car park he was quite specific about this and it was coincidental timing really because this book came out just as Philippa Langley was really getting into her swing and she'd been down famously to Leicester as part of researching what at the time ironically was a film script uh, about Richard III. And she'd had this, this extraordinary experience in the car park. She had this shiver, cold shiver, and she felt, goodness, you know, his grave is here. My hero's grave is here. And then the following year, she went back to Leicester again to check up and found that somebody had painted a white R <laughs> in, on the tarmac in the same place. Obviously, a, a reserved space, but nonetheless, quite a quite a moment, I think, for her. And... She got in touch with John Ashdown Hill coincidentally about the time he was publishing his book. And in effect, his book was almost a, a project design, you know, or a manifesto for what Philippa hoped to achieve, which was to find and excavate the grave. And the two of them worked together quite closely on the project. The main thing she needed to do was to find archaeologists to do the job for her because neither she nor John Ashdown Hill had, uh, were archaeologists or had any experience of archaeology. And this was a little problem for them because they had no idea actually how to find an archaeologist. And interestingly, one of the things they did was John Ashdown Hill wrote to Channel 4 and thought Time Team might be interested. And in one of those funny twists, Tony Robinson, the presenter of Time Team, had recently made a film about Lester and Richard III, in which he showed how Richard's body had been thrown into the river. <laughs> so, so it was probably the timing wasn't quite right. But Time Team, I think understandably, just sort of said, no, there's not a chance, you know, we'll find anything, and, and rejected it. And the BBC also rejected the idea. But eventually, Philippa was able to persuade um, an, an independent production company, Darla Smithson, to take the gamble and eventually... Channel 4 commissioned a film from them. So when the excavation took place, it was filmed, uh, uh, which was an extraordinary thing in itself, you know, that we see as it happens, um, the excavation, the trench being opened, the discovery of bones and so on. But eventually they were able to 
contact archaeologists in Leicester, helped particularly by the county council, a woman called Sarah Levitt, who features in the Lost King movie as helping Philippa a lot, which she did. She was an early supporter of the project. And once they contacted archaeologists in the person of Richard Buckley, who was the director of the university's excavation unit. Now, perhaps I should explain this, that uh, most archaeology in the UK these days is conducted in a commercial context. It's done by professional archaeologists who work in businesses or charities or or organisations of various types. Uh, And they do their work for developers, for builders, for highways agency and so on, um, working with the planning system and investigating sites ahead of development if it is suspected that there are likely to be important archaeological remains. Now, in this particular case, Leicester University used to have its own archaeologists and then they were sort of hived off as a separate commercial unit, but they are still based within the university um, and they are an exceptionally skilled team of archaeologists and importantly, they they work particularly in Leicester. Some of these businesses operate across the UK and indeed various places around the world, but Leicester's one of those units that focuses on its local area. So the archaeologists in the University of Leicester Archaeological Services, as it's known, know the city and its archaeology and its geology and its soils extremely well. So Richard Buckley was the right person for Philippa to find, and he was receptive. He he liked Philippa. He was completely dismissive of the idea that they would ever find Richard's grave, and it wasn't something that particularly interested him but he could see quite early on that between them there was there were separate projects that would work together that they were each very uh, very interested in. So for Philippa, it was to find the grave. But for Richard, it was to find the friary in which the grave would have lain. And in Leicester, they have, ULAS, this unit, have done some really substantial excavations ahead of of housing, in particular, some commercial shopping developments. But they don't get the opportunity to excavate in the city where developments are not taking place. And in this particular case, the area where the friary was thought to be, and they had a reasonable idea. They didn't know precisely where it was. This is the point. But they had a reasonable idea where it was. And that area contained quite a large number of open spaces that were never going to be developed car parks and gardens, um, very close to Leicester Cathedral. The main car park was a, a, a private, a commercial car park, the larger one, largest one, and they didn't have access to that. Um, the owner, fair enough, you know, didn't want to forego his income um, and the compensation for closing that car park would have been way beyond any budget the archaeologists had. So that left two smaller car parks, and one of them was owned by the, by the city council and was a social services car park. And the other was a, a, a tiny space at the back of a school, a former school, which was about to go on the market for redevelopment. So Richard Buckley could see that here was a project that would allow him and his archaeologists to identify, locate the Friary Church and find out something about its architecture and its history, which otherwise they would never have been able to do. The only way 
Richard's grave could be identified would be to show that this grave was inside the friary in the choir, you know, where a, a royal burial would be. So the two projects meshed very well. So the first thing then was to establish where the friary was, uh, having raised the money. And Philippa raised money for for what we call a desk-based assessment, you know, for desk research to investigate the, the history of the sites to see what the likelihood is that any archaeological deposits survived below the tarmac and so on. And she raised money helped by the Richard III Society, who were very supportive. And uh, the desk-based assessment was carried out. And the archaeologists, I think, were surprised to find that actually the chances of there being remains there were actually quite good. And one of the things with Leicester is there's no local stone. And where you have major public buildings built out of stone, they're, they're invariably quarried away. So... Roman buildings, for example, made of stone, what you find are not usually stone foundations, but you find trenches where the stones once had been that have been taken out after the buildings have been demolished. So they weren't expecting to find stone foundations of of the Ferrari, but they were hoping they would find the trenches in which the walls had originally been standing. And that's quite difficult to identify. But they had a a budget sufficient for, in the end, three small trenches. And they figured they worked on the principle that a religious building has a more or less east-west alignment. And so they they set out three trenches on a north-south alignment, three long, narrow trenches, hoping that they would hit somewhere, this east-west building. And it worked. Uh, within a few days, uh, it really unprecedented speed for any excavation and particularly something on such a small scale i mean as an archaeologist i would call wouldn't even call it an excavation we would call this an evaluation which is a small investigation really setting out to determine what actually survives rather than to find it if you see what i mean and typically what happens with evaluations is you as soon as you hit something of interest so you hit the top say in this case of medieval layers you would then stop and then you'd write your report and say well we think this is there if you dig deeper. So this was, in a sense, a preliminary evaluation with the ultimate goal, of course, of of finding the grave. And so very rapidly they found the building. And as we know, within hours on the first day of the excavation, they found human remains. They found a pair of legs. And at that point, they had no idea where that grave would be. There were likely to be hundreds of graves associated with the Ferrari. And as they didn't know where the Friary was, it was a reasonable assumption at that point that this grave was part of a cemetery outside the building. Over the following week, they were able to establish that it was, in fact, inside the church. The budget allowed them to excavate six groups of human remains, six graves. So... Richard Buckley held off excavating this first grave until they knew it was in the church um, because they might have come across a dozen graves. You know, you couldn't just excavate every grave as it came up. You needed to have a, a reasonable idea that it was in the right place at least before you did that. So the time came when they realised it was inside the church and it seemed to be not, you know, unreasonable. I think it might be near the choir. So... They started excavating it, and Thierry King, the DNA scientist, and Joe Appleby, a human osteologist, um, started digging it. 
The next day, Cherry King had already arranged to go to a conference in Austria, so she wasn't there. So it was just Joe Appleby in the trench. While she was digging in that trench, un- slowly uncovering, very gently uncovering these bones and wearing a white suit, um, as they decided they would do with all six of these burials in the event that they might want to use DNA for identification. In the other little car park associated with the school, where they had trench three, they had found some stone foundations, surprisingly. And they had a couple of medieval historians visiting the site. And there was a meeting over there while Joe was uncovering these bones, unknown to her, over the other side of the wall. These historians said to Richard Buckley, you're correct, that grave, the other side, is in the choir. In other words, it's exactly the right place for Richard's grave. Meanwhile, Joe slowly uncovers remains, first of all finding that the skull has got serious wounds in it, several of which would have been fatal, looking like battle wounds. And then the last bit she comes to is the chest area, and she finds the spine is very severely curved. And at that point, Joe and Matthew Morris, who was actually directing the site, uh, the excavation on site, both had that moment where they thought, my goodness, this could be Richard III's body. So Matthew goes around to tell Richard Buckley. To do that, he has to go out into the street and through a public crowd. Um, by then, thanks to the university press office's operations, um, there was really quite a lot of public interest, and there was a big crowd outside, but they had kept from the public the fact that they'd found any human remains. They were worried about security, and they were also worried that the idea would get out that they'd found Richard, when in fact they hadn't. You know, they were trying really hard to uh, retain kind of academic control, as it were, of the research progress. So Matthew goes outside into the street, through this crowd of people, and back into the other little car park to, to tell... Richard Buckley, that he thinks they might have found Richard III. And they are being filmed by this Channel 4 crew. (laughs) And the uh, public can hear what's going on. So they have this conversation where they tell the camera crew, Richard Buckley at first doesn't want to talk to Matthew because he's got guests and he tries to to push him away. And eventually the penny drops and they very quietly reassemble back in in the other car park. And, um, and film this extraordinary sequence of excavating this spine. And from that moment, everything went completely ballistic. It just <laughs> exploded. So this, this just seems astonishing. So, so early on in the excavation, the first body they encounter is, is the one that ends up being Richard III. I mean, is this just incredible luck, or was this due to the extensive preparations they'd done beforehand? It's a combination of of both of those things but more than anything it's luck i mean it is extraordinary it's a famous thing in archaeology that when you excavate a site you always find the most important thing or the most interesting thing just as you're closing down at the end of a dig Um, or it might be that you know you'd find the beginning of a building that you've been looking for um on the last few days and it would just disappear out of the trench and go underneath your spoil heap and you could (laughs) and that that is a regular thing. It, it happens a lot. But to have 
the great, the key find turn up on the first day. I just think it's, it's unprecedented. It's extraordinary luck. They did know roughly where the friary was. But to give you an example, there's the whole, you know, you could, I could go on forever, the number of coincidences and, and twists in this that accidentally, as it were, led them to the successful result. When Matthew Morris was setting out his trench, this was trench one, incidentally, it's the first trench, and it's a long trench, two metres wide, so it's very narrow. And he has this car park in which he can put it, and he has to decide where to put the trench. Now, most of the area was covered in... There was, like, a car park attendant's hut, and, and there were still a few cars, and there were areas that needed to be accessible. The social services offices were were, were busy and functioning, and they needed to be protected, and, and they needed to be areas where they could drive in and out. They had a mechanical excavator to cut through the tarmac and lift off the car park layers, uh, and that needed to get in and out, and so on. And so there are all sorts of constraints about where he could put his trench. So he puts it roughly in the middle of this car park, and then he realised that going down the centre of this space, near the centre of this space, was a long white line, which was the edge of a parking area. So he decided to use that line to lay out his trench. And his trench goes either side of that white line, now, if the trench had been, I don't think, any more than one metre to the east, it would have missed the grave. And that was ultimately, it's a bit like Philippa's R, you know, the position of that trench was ultimately determined by a car park line. And that is just, just complete luck. But having said that, the research that they did that led them to that space was good. You know, Philippa had a good reason to, to think that the friary was there and the grave was in the friary. And the archaeological work was excellent. The bones could easily have disappeared in a mechanical bucket. They weren't expecting anything to come up that fast. They weren't that far from the surface. And they'd been going through a lot of disturbed ground. There seemed to be an awful lot of brought-in rubble and gravel for car park layers that had brought the ground up. But at the same time... Um, superficial buildings sort of victorian outhouses and gardening and stuff had appeared to have destroyed a lot of the archaeology and it was quite difficult ground to dig in it's not fine stuff it was sort of hard and stony and clay it's difficult stuff so there was a lot of skill and expertise experience that came into simply recognizing those bones uh, and the grave in time before any any damage was done and it continued like that, you know, the skill and the expertise, the experience of Leicester's soils and buildings that allowed the archaeologists to identify and map, chart the friary so fast. There's skill there, but there was also just a huge amount of luck. You know, their trenches happened to hit bits that had survived that enabled them to identify certain parts of the buildings and so on. It's just extraordinary. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I think, as an archaeologist, one of the surprising things for me was to find that actually the archaeology supported historical evidence that had been questioned by historians. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So were, were Richard's bones just kind of loose in the ground or was there any remains of a coffin or any other kind of paraphernalia around him? There was effectively nothing. Um, it didn't look as if it, there'd ever been a coffin. The grave, and even the grave itself, was hard to define because it had been damaged. You know, there had been excavations, buildings and things that had gone down and removed parts of the ground. And it looked as if it had been dug in haste. It was too short. So when the body was laid down on its back in the grave... The head was propped up very high and that was unfortunate because the result of that was that when Joe Appleby started to excavate the grave, she started at a much higher level than that at which the legs had been found and hit the top of the skull with her mattock um, and did a sort of minor bit of damage as a result of that. And these things happen, you know, this sort of thing happens all the time, it's not unusual um, but that was because the head was propped up very tight against the top end of the grave because it just wasn't big enough. The only indication of anything in the grave was that the king's hands, were his, his wrists were crossed to one side of his hip and it did rather look as if his wrists might have been tied together but there was no indication or no space indeed for a coffin or any structure of any kind below ground. Now, these remains were identified very early on in the project, but how did they go about being sure that this was Richard? There clearly may have been other people who'd suffered battle wounds who may have had curved spines. How could they be sure that this was actually the king? I mean, you're quite right. I mean, it's easy, and of course some people did, (laughs) um, to make the immediate assumption that this is Richard III project over. But as you say, it's... it's, uh, Certainly, it's not at all unlikely that there will be other graves around that Ferrari of individuals who might have died at Bosworth. And secondly, it's not inconceivable that somebody else could have had a curved spine. And interestingly, of course, at this particular, or at least before the the immediate discovery of this grave, Philippa Langley was convinced that the king did not have a curved spine. And indeed, that was part of her mission was to disprove the Shakespearean monster of withered arm, limp, humped back and so on. 
by showing that actually he was a uh, a king who had none of these features and that the skeleton would reveal this. So in theory, at that point, Philippa should have looked at that body and said, oh, no, that's not, that's not Richard III. He didn't have a cursed spine. <laughs> but of course, many people, and in fact, it hit, Richard, it, it hit Philippa as well, um, immediately thought, hmm, this is definitely a candidate for the king. So the process was multifold. First of all, you needed to prove that the grave was in the right place. Now, they'd more or less done that, um, but they needed to analyse the work that they'd done further on that. But that had been part of the excavation. It happened remarkably fast. So they knew it was in the right place. But then there was an awful lot of things they could do with those remains to identify aspects of the man's life history that could be compared with the historical record. So the first thing, of course, is to determine even whether it was a man. And interestingly, um, at one point, Joe Appleby did wonder if it was female because the bones are really quite slight and feminine. And that matched the historical descriptions of Richard as a slender, slight man, delicate features. And she did decide in the end that, in fact, it was male. And there are a whole pile of scientific analysis that were applied to these remains that include things like using isotopes in his bones to get ideas about where he might have grown up. Um, and the iso- these particular isotopes are affected by uh, intake of water and food and weather and proximity to sea, various things like that that can help you narrow down a region where somebody might have been born or grown up. Uh, There were aspects of his diet that could be determined from the remains, his age, his health, its wounds, of course, needed um, a lot of examination. And all of these things matched the historical record. And in some respects, even more so than anybody might have expected, because historians of various stripes had spent a lot of time arguing that the historical record was biased, that it was mostly written after the king died, and even stuff that was written at the time he was alive uh, was needed to be treated very carefully. And I think, as an archaeologist, one of the surprising things for me was to find that actually the archaeology supported historical evidence that had been questioned by historians. So that, from a purely technical point of view as an archaeologist, that was quite interesting because it helped us gain insights into some of these technologies that archaeologists use that are normally applied to prehistoric Roman remains where we don't have any historical evidence that we can check things against. So from a purely technical point of view, this was a really valuable exercise and it actually tested a number of well-tried archaeological techniques and showed that they actually did work very well. So we had all these details that fitted his physicality, uh, his health, the wounds, that fit quite specifically in some respects, the descriptions of how he died at Bosworth, his age, where he grew up, and so on and so on. But the clinching thing would be his DNA, And that was something that Terry King managed. And um, interestingly, Leicester University was the place where DNA fingerprinting was first developed. Uh, So it's an appropriate 
university for this project to take place, although at the time they didn't have the fully uh, clean labs that you need for DNA, and some of Thierry's work was done on the continent. And there was one story she likes to tell where she, she had to go through passport controls on the continent with a little bag of white powder, which was, <laughs> which was the, uh, the remains that were, that were being taken for analysis and had an interesting conversation with the, with the gentleman at the passport. And, uh, and as we know, the DNA turned up the same result. And this was possible because... Initially, John Ashdown Hill had tracked down a living descendant of one of Richard III's ancestors. He himself left no direct descendants, but there are a number of family members. And John Ashdown Hill tracked down a woman whose maternal DNA would have been passed on from somebody who would have had the same DNA, uh, DNA as Richard's mother. So that was a really important step. And the university brought in historian Kevin Shearer, who researched the family lines and discovered another woman who had the same maternal DNA. And he also discovered a number of male lines. And Thierry was able to take modern DNA samples and compare these with the ancient ones from Richard. And of course, as we know, they matched perfectly. And so that was the clincher. Along the way, incidentally, another really interesting, and another test as well, interesting piece of science that was brought in, was a facial reconstruction was made from the skull. And this is quite a you know, well-known technique. It's used a lot for museum displays and television films. Um, and um, a facial reconstruction was made of, from the skull, and the similarity to paintings of Richard III was so strong that the lady who conducted the research went back and did it again because she thought it was too good to be true. And she'd very carefully avoided looking at any of these paintings before she did the work. And again, that, was, that interested me because the paintings, uh, all of which that survive, that were done after Richard's death, were a focus for... Ricardians, um, people like Philippa, members of the Richard III Society, who are keen to argue that Richard III was nothing like the monster that history has painted him as. Um, they had argued very strongly that the paintings were doctored or were not representing the real Richard, um, but were painted to show that he looked um, uh, ill-formed and evil-looking, you know. And the, remarkably, the facial reconstruction on his skull was very, very similar to the painting. So again, we had archaeological evidence appearing to actually support historical data that had been questioned by historians. Were there any instances at all of where the archaeology actually differed from the historical record and has now changed our view of Richard? It depends on how you look at it, of course. <laughs> I mean, historical data and archaeological data are all kind of moving feasts, but... I think there is, and I think it's a very interesting and significant one. Possibly it's, there's two things to this. First of all, clearly the Shakespearean physical deformed monster, which included the remarkable features of Richard III, the fact that he, his teeth had grown in his mother's womb, that this was clearly wrong. This was not the case. He did have a condition, scoliosis, which left 
gave him a severely curved spine and it might have put him in considerable discomfort. It might not. It's not something we can tell. But interestingly, it's something that need not have been visible to anybody seeing Richard at the time he was alive. And clearly we know that he was able to fight on horseback wearing heavy armour. And uh, so it's quite likely that uh, as king, he was protected, his condition was hidden from everybody. And it's possible that the only people who knew about it were people who were very close to him in his chamber, who dressed him and looked after his health. And that we were a very small number of people. On the battlefield, history tells us he was stripped naked and his body was thrown over a horse. The archaeology fits that narrative very well. He doesn't have on his body, on his bones, he doesn't have wounds that we see on contemporary uh, human remains where individuals were not wearing armour, where they have a lot of wounds on their arms and hands, which... uh, they obtain when they try and protect themselves from attack uh, and all but he has wounds on his head and we know that he could only have got those by having his helmet removed by having his armor removed which again is fits the historical narrative but he also has a couple of wounds elsewhere on his body that could not have he could not have received while he was wearing armor And they don't even look as if they could have been inflicted while he was standing up or alive. But they could have been inflicted while his body was laying over a horse. And there's one in particular where somebody stabbed his buttocks and with quite a deep wound. And that would most likely have been inflicted when his his bum was sticking up in the air, you know, literally when he was flung over this horse. And the interesting aspect of that to me is that As a scoliosis sufferer, his back was not humped, it was just bent sideways. But with scoliosis, particularly severe scoliosis, if you bend forward and touch your toes, a hump bumps up on your back. And it's actually a diagnostic test um, that, you know, you can be asked to touch your toes to see what happens. So I think it's quite possible that what happened on the battlefield was that he fought bravely, he was hemmed in, his helmet was removed, he was killed, he was stripped of his armour, thrown naked over a horse. And at that moment, the Adams bend forward test, his spine rose up and lo and behold, the story of a humped king was born. The second thing is that stab in the buttock. That is, I'm told by historians, a very strange thing to do, that even in death, it's a very extremely disrespectful thing to inflict on a monarch, which, you know, it sounds common sense, I suppose. But And so that kind of fits with a narrative that people like Philippa Langley and Ricardians who try to argue that Richard was a very popular king. It conflicts with that, and it suggests that at that very moment on the battlefield, there was at least one person who wanted to inflict some kind of personal revenge on the king. And the subsequent funeral arrangements, which were respectful, but clearly not 
uh, normal for a king, and not least when we look at the grave, and it, you know, not only just to ha- have no coffin, but it's not even dug big enough for the the poor man. You know, that there's an element I think in the archaeology of disrespect to the body, and that has I think has interesting historical implications. It feeds into that debate about what people really thought about the king when he was alive. Now, of course, here for Richard's second burial, that was much more respectful and. Uh, fairly prominent in Leicester Cathedral. I wonder if you could just briefly talk us through the process of how that came about. Was there any objection to such a grand, um, you know, burial for a man who had been accused of, you know, by many people of murdering his two nephews? I don't think anybody thought it was a bad idea to give Richard III a, a, a good send-off. Um, it, it absolutely captured the imagination of people around the world. And here, of course, the the Shakespearean play had a great deal to do with this and various films and television broadcasts that have been made of the play. So I think everybody thought it was right, you know, for a grand ceremony, but there was a lot of argument about what that ceremony should be and where it should be. When archaeologists excavate human remains, you have to get a licence from the Ministry of Justice. When you fill out the form, one of the things you have to do is to say what's going to happen to any remains you find. And in this case, it said that they would likely be reburied in Leicester Cathedral, which was, I mean, barely 100 yards from the grave. You know, it was very close. And, oh, but left open the possibility they could go into a museum. But, uh, and that's quite, you know, quite unusual for a small excavation for archaeologists to say, we plan to rebury these. It happens on, on a very large scale. I mean, we have... In recent years, for example, the HS2 works, there have been huge archaeological excavations where hundreds and hundreds of graves have been excavated. I mean, for example, a big one in London at Euston, uh, a huge London uh, late medieval Victorian cemetery. And ultimately, those individuals will be reburied. But in this case, it was unusual, but it was in there to be reburied in Leicester. Now, once he'd been identified... Uh, which happened only a few months after the excavation that found him, a great public debate began about where it should be, and a lot of people didn't want it to be Leicester. Uh, I have to say, in some cases, there were racist undertones here, that there were some people who clearly felt that Leicester was too much of a multicultural city for an English king. Our favourite location for the reburial was York, but a number of other places were, were suggested, Westminster, various churches and chapels around the country. And this idea grew that Richard himself had decided he wanted to be buried in York, for which there was absolutely no historical evidence. And it was debated in Parliament, it was raised in Parliament. And eventually there was a judicial review, which was a, in itself an extraordinary thing when a group of historians and counsellors and university academics and administrators and representatives of the Ministry of Justice were brought together in the High Court in London to debate in front of uh, Justice Hallett the issue of where Richard's remains should be buried. I attended the hearing and it had for me the feeling of a play in its own right. It was quite dramatic. The discussions that were had were sometimes almost surreal. You know, you had to sort of pinch yourself and remind yourself that we were actually discussing 
an English king who died at battle in the 15th century as if they had uh, had recently been a living monarch. And that review did eventually decide in favour of the original proposal, which was to bury the king in Leicester Cathedral, which I'm absolutely sure was the right thing to do. So we're talking today partly because it's the 10th anniversary of the discovery of Richard's remains, but also, as you alluded to earlier, we've got this big film, The Lost King, coming out by the time you're listening to this, I think, very soon. Now, you're on an advantage compared to me because you've seen a preview and I haven't yet, but I'd be interested to know what your initial thoughts were about the film. I'd say two things about it. I thought it was a very entertaining film. You know, I think if you like sort of light comedy, bit of light history, nothing too challenging. I think it's a film you would enjoy a lot. I think as an archaeologist, I found some of it quite quite shocking, really. The the, um, reinvention of history, if you like. I'm particularly coming from somebody, Philippa Langley is the key character in this film. It's based on her own book about the story of Richard III's discovery and her project to find him and she's an executive producer on the film and it tells her story which is fine nothing wrong with that you know it's a great story and it, it's inspiringly told it's it's really you know you just get wrapped up in it and think wow this is amazing you know and it is an extraordinary story for me where it goes wrong is once it gets into the archaeology which it grossly misunderstands and given that it's representing real living working people who are represented both with their names but also actors who look like them, I think a more respect could have been given to their stories and more understanding than the film does. And ironically, I think if the archaeology had been better represented and brought into the story more, it's barely there at all, it would have made a better film. There are more twists and challenges in the science and archaeology that could have, I think, um, made a you know, fairly light film a bit bit more complex and interesting. Do you happen to know whether any of the archaeologists who worked on the project consulted on the film at all? No, they weren't. I mean, in a sense, there needn't be anything wrong with that. They've written books, you know, they've written peer-reviewed articles. There's a lot of information out there. I mean, I've written a book, Digging for Richard III, which, which tells the whole story from all sides. So it tells the university story, the archaeology, the academics, but also tells Philippa's story and her friends and colleagues so there's information out there, but I think if they'd consulted the archaeologists, not just consulted, but also listened, <laughs> you know, and taken on board some of the things they might have to say, I think they might have avoided a bit of trouble. I strongly suspect there's going to be a row when the film does come out. There are definitely things in there that, that are patently not true, and some of those involve the way in which individuals are represented so I suppose what you're telling our audience is uh, they should uh, watch the film, but then make sure they listen to this podcast, read your book, and get the other side of it as well. Oh, in that order, exactly. Excellent. And just uh, one last question for me. Um, I'm sure this story has sparked a lot of interest over the years in this idea of discovering lost figures from history. Who else is out there? Who should archaeologists be looking for next? An obvious candidate is another English king, Henry I, And indeed, Philippa Langley has already been out looking for him and and plotting to begin another archaeological excavation, hoping to find his grave. Now, Henry was buried in Reading. And we have a similar story 
there where an ecclesiastical building was demolished uh, during the dissolution. And we know he was buried in this building. The building is much better preserved. I mean, there's nothing above ground at all of the friary in Leicester. Reading Abbey survives with substantial standing remains. So we know exactly where it is and, and, and we know roughly where the grave should be. And there is, in fact, a, there's a plaque that's been there for some time on a bit of Abbey Wall at Reading saying this is where Henry I is buried. Now, interestingly, there's been some recent research into this and it's tied up with Reading Jail, which is an interesting story in its own right. There's this fantastic Victorian jail that is disused that the Ministry of Justice has been for some time trying to sell off for development. And as is as happens with these things, archaeologists are brought in to investigate the potential historic and archaeological value of the site and uncover not only the, the well-known fact that the jail itself had an interesting history, but also it was built over a very significant part of Reading Abbey. So archaeologists found a lot of stuff. They didn't try to figure out where Henry's grave was, but another archaeologist uh, looked at the record and remarkably he thinks that the grave is under a car park <laughs> at the edge of Reading Jail. Um, so potentially that grave is still there. That was Mike Pitts. His book, Digging for Richard III, The Search for the Lost King, is out now published by Thames and Hudson. And as I mentioned earlier, Mike also wrote the cover feature for the October issue of BBC History magazine, which you can read online at historyextra.com forward slash Richard hyphen returns. The Lost King was released in UK cinemas today. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.